All right, tonight we go back to the, uh, the London Baptist Confession of Faith. We're in chapter 20, but before we go to chapter 20, before we do anything, all right, this is very, very, no, not even really review, not even review, so don't worry, not worry. I want to just drive this point home, okay? Um, we, we haven't worked enough on the 25 theses. I mean, we, we, we know some of them we changed, but we didn't get enough into them to know, wait a minute, we got a major disagreement with that one or a major disagreement with that one or that's a major problem. We'll work, when we go through all 25, then we'll figure out, uh-oh, we got a problem. But then we started working on uh, the history. We didn't have a problem with the history because it's just the history, right? Can't have a problem with that. Then we started reading through the London Baptist Confession of Faith, all right? And so I want to just drive this point home. At this point in our discussion between law and gospel, and you may want to, I don't know how you want to write this down. I don't know how you want to phrase it. Phrase it any way you want. The big, big, big issue, the big issue, right, that we have to consider right now, the big issue is this. Yeah, I'm on, right? Yeah, I'm on. Yeah, okay. All right, I'm on. All right, okay. Don't scare me. Okay, I'm on. Okay, am I not being loud enough? I can, I can scream louder. Okay, no, all right. All right, here we go. So, the big, 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 big issue is for a Christian, are we free from the bondage of sin, meaning that we can say no to sin and yes to righteousness? That's the big question. All right, are we free from the bond? Now, every Christian you listen to will say, you're free from the bondage of sin, and they will, and by, by that, typically, now some may try to modify it, but typically that means that you are free to do what? Say no to sin, and yes to God, and then they will, but however they will say, but... No one will be sinless and no one will be perfect, which is the most insane thing I have ever heard in my life. How can you say one thing and then immediately say something that contradicts everything you just said five seconds later and not realize we got a problem here? And I'm just going to throw this out just for fun before we before we go to chapter 20. Why do you think? Because, I mean, all of us have sat in churches and heard that, right? We're free from the punishment of sin. We're free from the power of sin. And we're free from the penalty of sin and the bondage of sin. Like, we hear these things. Now, some of those things, we would be, we would be like, amening, right? But then at some point, they will explain that now you're free to say yes to God and no to sin. And we probably at some point in our Christian life said, amen. But did we ever stop to ask ourselves, like, why did we not catch it? What do you think? I mean, this is really the million dollar. If we can figure out the why, then we could probably fix all the problems with Christian thinking. Well, you don't have to be someone like me. You lived your life, right? Didn't you realize you kept sinning? Okay, so I guess, but that's still, I don't know. I just don't know why I didn't catch it. Like, I knew I kept sinning. Like you mean when you were 
Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, today, yesterday, I mean, it doesn't matter, younger or older, we all keep sinning, right? So how did we not catch on to the fact, well, if I'm free from sin and I can say no to sin, why do I keep sinning? That, that should be something that every one of us had to come into contact with. But we all, everyone in this room will admit that you, we, none of us came into to that realization, right? So how did we reconcile it in our brains? There had to be something we were telling ourselves. Stacy kind of looked at, we point, as brainwashing, I guess. It it makes me angry because it's like, wait a minute, I should have been raising my hand going, this this is broken, this is broken, this is broken, this is broken, this is broken. There's there's something wrong here. I I don't get it, but I mean, I I reviewed, uh, I've been reviewing sermons from a conference on law and gospel, and they said the exact same thing. You're now free. You're free from sin, and you can say no to sin and say yes to God. And I'm like, and everybody in, the, in there was like amening. And I'm like, what are we amening? It's literally provable, not true. Like, I don't even know how that can be controversial. How can anybody get mad at me? It's literally a true statement. Now, let's think this through. Now, I want you to hear what I'm about to say, okay? If, if it is true that we are free from sin, Right? In other words, we're free from the bondage of sin, so now I can say yes to God and no to sin. If that is true, if it's true, then would it not be not only the right thing to do, not only would it be the, the thing that you, your mind should just go to, shouldn't that lead then to saying, how do I know Bobby is saved? I look at his actions. And why should I look to his actions? Because Bobby is free from the bondage of sin, Bobby can say no to sin and yes to God. Then should I not look at that to prove his salvation? But if I can demonstrate to you that he's not free from the bondage of sin because he can't be perfect and he will continue, because if he can't be perfect and continue to sin, that proves you're still in bondage, right? So if you're still in bondage, then how can I point or have Bobby look to, the, to his life and the righteousness in his life as proof of salvation if he's not free from the bondage of sin. Maybe the entire argument goes down to that. Hey, you want to argue, you know, no, no, people will be changed. You can look to that to prove salvation. Okay, so you're telling me that people can say yes to God and no to sin. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Okay, well, then people can be perfect. No, wait a minute. The minute I can convince them that we still sin, we still have a sinful nature, and we can't say no to sin, and we can't say yes to God in any meaningful way because we're going to continue to sin, then you can no longer point to the change in someone's life as proof of salvation. Does everybody understand that? I want to make sure we have that 1,000% down. This argument really comes, everything, so much of this really comes down to this truth. Can you, say no, can you say no to sin and yes to God? And I'll say, well, you can't do it perfectly. If I can't do it perfectly, then I'm still what? I want everyone to say it with me. I'm still in bondage to sin. Because, because to be in bondage means I can't do something, right? I'm restricted. I'm restricted. So if I can't stop sinning, I'm still in bondage to it. To say that I'm not in bondage to it, I have to now be able to stop sinning. That, that is just a factual statement. And if I'm still in bondage to it, 
then I can't look to my life to prove my salvation because I'm looking to a life that's in bondage to sin. So what do I have to look to to prove my salvation? Someone who wasn't in bondage to sin and someone who lived a perfect life, which is Jesus Christ, which leads us back to the gospel. Everything hinges on that truth. Everything hinges on that truth. I will say that right now in our study, that is the most important truth concept you have to understand. You have to answer that question. Most of your Christian friends will tell you that you've been freed from the bondage of sin. You can say no to sin and say yes to God while they continue to sin. And won't ever even think about how utterly foolish they sound and how utterly foolish they look. You've got to help them see you are still in bondage to sin. Now, in what way am I not in bondage to sin? Positionally. In Christ? Am I in bondage to sin in Christ? No. Sin has no part on me. In Christ, what am I? New creature? Old things have passed away? All things have become new. In practice, we know that's not true because what still exists? Sin nature. If sin nature, that verse can't be talking about my everyday life, even though Christians constantly quote it that way. I, I did a review of, a, I think it was a devotional or a book. I did something on uh, one of the podcasts, and, I, and it, it was called the devotional or the sermon was called, Yes, You Can. And basically saying, yes, you can obey. Yes, you can say no to sin. Yes, you can do it. And I just listened to that going, that pastor sinned probably five minutes before walking into the pulpit and is going to be sinning five minutes after he gets out of the pulpit if he's not sinning while he's in the pulpit. But he's telling everyone, you can do it. Don't you wish the Christian life was that simple? Hey, Jesus died for you, now you can do it. That's, even Catholics aren't foolish enough to make that claim. Catholics are smart enough to go, well, wait a minute. Yeah, I've been infused with righteousness. Yeah, I can pray to Mary. Yeah, I can pray to the saints. Yeah, I have all the sacraments. But I still need to go to confession and penance. Still need to earn some indulgences. And I'm probably going to end up in purgatory. At least they're willing to admit that even with all the things going for them, they're not, we are delusional. All right, so everyone understands why that question is so important. Yes? Okay. Everybody got that? All right. And I want you to also just remember the influence of pietism on evangelicalism and modern-day Christianity. Started in the 17th century. And I believe pietism leads to legalism. And I'm defining legalism as claiming that i got to do this or this or this to prove that I'm saved. Because that means I have to do works to be saved, which means I'm saved by works. And you can, you can try to say that's not what it means, but that's what you're saying. All right, everybody got that? I can't, oh, I hope, I hope everyone has that down. I hope, I hope, I hope. There, there may not be a more important thing that we're going to talk about than that. Okay, now, everybody got it open uh, to uh, the London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 20? All right, I'm going to open up the app here, make sure nobody has asked any questions. Okay, here we go. Chapter 19 was about law, and it ended with that, that paragraph 7 that caused all the problems. Okay, so that's why we, we just went back to that. Everybody good? Here we go. Chapter 20. What's it called? All right. The modern English, the gospel and the extent of, of its grace. The gospel and the extent of its grace. Paragraph 1. 
because the covenant of works was broken by sin and was unable to confer life, God was pleased to proclaim the promise of Christ, the seed of the woman, as the means of calling the elect and producing in them faith and repentance. In this promise, the gospel and its substance was revealed and made effectual for the conversion and salvation of sinners. The main thing, obviously this is coming from a Reformed perspective, because who produces faith and repentance? God. God. We do not produce the faith. We do not produce the repentance. And I, and I will stress, I know the, the writers of the London Baptist may not, repentance is a change of mind. It's a change of mind. All right? That's the main meaning of the word. You say, but, but that change of mind will lead to a change of action. If you're not careful, then guess what? You're going to almost require, I know we'll try to say it doesn't work this way, but it almost will require that you change your action before you can even be saved. No. And so we say, well, it just shows that you're willing to change your action. Well, how much action has to be changed before I know that I'm saved? And so you're right back to proving you're saved based off what? Not the faith, but the action. But the change of mind can be seen when? Instantaneously. The change of mind is shown instantaneously. Why? You're believing in Jesus. You're acknowledging you're a sinner. Like immediately, that's a change of mind. The change of mind is seen instantaneously, and then your mind continues to change, right? Okay. Because repentance is not a one-time thing, it's an ongoing thing. We're constantly changing our mind. Okay? And I'm not saying that it has nothing to do with a change of life. I'm just saying primarily it means... I mean, that's what the word means. We looked it up. That's what it means. Okay? So I, it, it, it may have other aspects, but it starts with a change of mind. All right? No problem with that. That seems straightforward. If you're not reformed, you don't like that one. Because if you're not reformed, where does faith and repentance arise from? Inside of you. You believe, you decide to believe, you change your mind. Okay? Which almost requires what? A denial of total depravity. But, as my, our independent fundamental Baptist church in Nebraska would teach us, no, we're totally depraved, but the will is insulated and protected from the depravity. So therefore, the will is not touched by the depravity. Therefore, you can choose to believe and you can choose to repent. I, I know. It's, we thought it was insane then. Well, I, I was the one having problems with it back then early on. So I, I, I had major issues with how, how does that work? How, and again, if that's true, if my will is not touched by my depravity, what should then we expect? Not be able to choose sin even without regeneration. Which, who said that? Starts with a P, everyone. P, Pelagius. Pelagius said that we can, there could be perfect people even without regeneration. Which, I applaud him. That's honest. You got Christians today, no, I believe in libertarian free will. Okay, well then nobody needs salvation because anyone can just choose to be perfect. So why do they need saved? Well, they need saved to be forgiven for their sins. Well, then after you're forgiven for their sins, you can just choose to be perfect. Because your will would have to be in a better place after conversion than before conversion, right? 
So, but does people who believe in libertarian free will believe you can choose to be perfect? No. Then they turn around and say, you can't be. <laughs> Either your will is free or it's not free. Then they pray for God for pe- pray to save someone. I'm like, God can't save them if their will is free. He can't do anything. <laughs> okay. It's like, I believe in libertarian free will, but could you pray that God would save these 10 people? Would you believe God would work on their heart? Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. You want God to violate their free will? No, 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 no. You believe in free will. I'm not praying for anything. Okay. I'm not praying for anything. Okay. I'm going to be consistent to your theology. But you see that, that it just becomes just as broken, right? Hey, I believe in libertarian free will. Well, then people can choose to be perfect. Well, so then guess what? You can prove to me libertarian free will. What's the test to prove libertarian free will? Choose to stop sinning. That's all you got to do. Do you know anyone who believes in free will who can just stop sinning? If they can't stop sinning, what does that mean about their will? Not so free, huh? Maybe in bondage, huh? Interesting. Number two. So now, I've, t- I'm, I've already ticked off the reformed people. Now I've ticked off the non-reformed people. I just got to find some more people to tick off. Anybody got some other groups I can tick off before? And I'm not trying, but I, look, my issue is I don't care about your team. I care about how illogical you are in some of these things. Some of these things are just like, we got to think these through. All right, paragraph two. What are we going to talk about in pre- paragraph two? Here we go. The promises of Christ and of salvation through him is revealed in the word of God alone. The works of creation and providence, when assisted only by the light of nature, do not reveal Christ or grace through him, even in a general or obscure way. Well, what are they trying to draw a distinction? The general call and the effectual call. What does nature give you? A general call. It does not point you to what? Christ, his what? Grace. What what does the general call through creation point to? Just a creator. Just a creator. May point to power. May point to wisdom. But that's about it. Agreed? Okay. All right. Um, much less are those, much less are those without the revelation of him and the promise of gospel uh, enabled to attain saving faith or repentance by seeing the works of God. In other words, you cannot uh, attain saving faith or repentance by simply seeing creation. All you can do is come to what conclusion? There is a God. You just don't know what God it is. You don't know much about his nature. You don't know much anything. Does that make sense? Right. No, that's pretty simple, straightforward. You don't even need my help, right? All right, we only got two more paragraphs. All right, here we go. The gospel has been revealed to sinners in various times and in different places, along uh, with the promises and precepts describing the obedience it requires. The particular nations, that's an interesting way of describing it, in, uh, isn't it? The gospel It's promises, precepts, and describing the obedience it requires. That's kind of an interesting phrase, huh? Because typically we connect obedience with the law. It's kind of interesting that they're using that language. Okay? It sounds, it makes me a little nervous, but okay. The particular nations and individuals who are granted this revelation are chosen solely according to the sovereign will and good pleasure of God. This choice does not depend on any promise to those who demonstrate good stewardship of their natural abilities based on common light received apart from the gospel, nor one has ever done this, uh, nor can anyone do so. 
Therefore, in every age, the preaching of the gospel to individuals and nations have been granted in widely varying degrees of expansion and contraction according to the counsel and the will of God. Simply put, people are saved through the preaching of God's word, right? That's how, that's how it occurs. And that preaching, and people are not saved by their will, they're, they're saved by the will of God, and that preaching shows up in different places at different times according to the will of God. Which could raise some serious philosophical questions, but we won't go into that right now, all right? Number four, the gospel is the only outward means of revealing Christ and saving grace, and it is abundantly sufficient for that purpose. Yet to be born again, brought to life or regenerated, those who are dead in trespasses also must have an effectual, irresistible work of the Holy Spirit in every part of their souls to produce in them a new spiritual life. Without this, no other means will bring about their conversion to God. Right? That's speaking of the effectual call, irresistible grace, and all those types of things. Now, that last like sentence, does it create a problem in your mind? A major theological problem. Like, like that last sentence there. Let me read it to you. Yeah, I'll read this whole part. Yet to be born again, it's kind of like, well, maybe almost, I guess half of the paragraph almost, but yet to be born again, brought to life or regenerated, those who are dead in trespasses also must have an effectual, irresistible work of the Holy Spirit in every part of their soul to produce in them a new spiritual life. So we have someone who's dead, right? Who's brought to spiritual life. Yes? And it's completely done by the Holy Spirit. Now, this should lead to an obvious question that every Christian should be confronted with, and nobody in this room and nobody online is going to like the answer to this question. What's the question that should be asked? If God can sovereignly, monergistically, Bring a sinner from spiritual death to spiritual life instantaneously. Why can't that same God monergistically so work in your life and my life that we never sin again? Well, that's an answer, but nobody likes that answer. We don't, we don't know. Now, oh, ab- now, very, very absolutely. Like, hey, hey, this question really just continues from Genesis. Remember, what is the most difficult question in the, uh, verse in the Bible? Genesis 1.1. Why does God create a world where sin's ever going to show up in the first place? And when it does show up, who could have gotten rid of it very early on? God. He could have gotten rid of, it, rid of it in Genesis 6. You know how he could have gotten rid of it in Genesis 6? He could have killed Noah's family as well. Well, right. I'm saying, right. I mean, we could have got. Why would he create this, this angelic being named Lucifer slash Satan, right? I mean, all the way. So clearly, all of it. But it all leads to this problem because uh, the audio that we reviewed this week, it was someone preaching a monergistic sanctification. 
which is common in the Reformed world. Uh, the Sovereign Grace Baptist Church in uh, San Angelo taught a monergistic uh, sanctification and when I was there for uh, NCO Academy. All right? So I, I am familiar with this teaching. Well, this raises lots of questions, right? Okay, so sanctification somehow is a process, but God, God does it completely himself. As they said in the audio that I recorded and part of this series on law and gospel, that you contribute nothing to your sanctification. That sounds wonderful, doesn't it? But what's the obvious question then? Well, one, why isn't it perfect? Two, why does it take so long? But three, the most obvious question. Why why do we blame people and condemn people when they have sin in their life? Who would be responsible for getting rid of it? God. If Bobby, if we find Bobby under the underpass on South 1st, North 1st, wearing no clothes and drunk, right? Who's going to get church disciplined? God or Bobby? Monergistic sanctification, I would think God would at least need to be standing next to him. But even if I don't believe in a monergistic, if I believe in a synergistic, that's still the work of whom? Two, and if God is involved in the work, why wouldn't God bear some of the responsibility? Correct? If Bobby and Stephen come up here to work on a new sound booth, right? And I come up here, I'm like, what in the world? It's like falling apart. Wires are hanging out. I go back there and get electrocuted. And then I wake up like... Both of them would bear the... Stephen can't say, well, Bobby did it. Bobby, that was Stephen. You would probably say, hey, guys, what were you two doing? Y'all were working on it too. So even in a synergistic one, you are left with a question. Well, why why do we keep sinning? What, 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 just throw out some answers. What, What would be some answers? Okay. Well, Stephen said it jokingly, but but I I think there's some serious to, seriousness to it. Well, well, whatever responsibility we have, just remember we didn't, you know, as Kate would say, I didn't ask to be born, right? Okay. Well, we didn't ask for this, right? And we have it, and we can't get rid of it. Okay, so so we I, I don't want I you got to be I'm going to say this, but I don't want everyone to go and get up and just walk out and go grab rocks to stone the heathen. Okay, but we have to at least consider this somehow. Sin is a part of God's plan. Now you said that right. Okay, I know you kind of said it jokingly, like, I didn't expect him to take me serious here, but, but now let me just, I, I'm going to try to justify my hypothesis. I'm going to try to justify it, okay? So let's start here, okay? Tell me if we all agree with this. God is all-knowing. God is all-powerful. All right? God is omnipresent. And God is holy. Will we agree that those are true attributes of God? All right. Did he create the world? Did he create the world knowing what was going to happen? Did he create the world with the power to stop what was going to happen? 
Sure. Did he create Satan? Could he have stopped Satan from entering the garden? Once, uh, once Satan entered the garden, could he have stopped him from tempting uh, Eve? Once Eve sinned, could he have destroyed Satan and Eve to stop Adam from doing so and then create another woman? Did he do any of those things? Once Adam and Eve both sinned, could he have destroyed both of them to stop them from producing children? But he lets it continue. Once he gets so fed up with it all, he decides to wipe away everyone on the planet. He knew what was still inside that ark. What was inside the ark? Sinful nature. Eight sinners. Could he have sunk the ark? Would that have fixed the problem? There would have been no more sin. Could have just let the animals have it. I mean, he could have, right? Could have let the water recede, let the animals get off the boat. And, I mean, if he sunk the boat, then he could have killed the people on the boat. In other words, there's millions of ways he could have fixed this, yes? As soon as Noah got off the boat, as soon as he know, Noah got off the boat, he ends up drunk and without any clothes. Something goes down in that tent. There's lots of speculation about what went down, and none of the speculations are good. We won't go into what possibly went down, but it's not good, Okay. Right? So uh, it, it shows up in my series on sexual violence in the Bible. Something didn't go right there. Okay? All right? So um, at, at that moment, he could have done what? Got rid of all eight. Still doesn't. Now, here we are, 2022. Sin's still happening. So Christians come along and go, but God is all powerful and he, he's the one. His spirit is inside of you to help you overcome sin. Well, if his, someone emailed me and said, I'm a little confused, right? If the Holy Spirit is in me, doesn't in a roundabout way mean the whole Trinity is in me because one God? I'm like, well, whether it's one God, whether it's the Holy Spirit, whether it's all three members of the Trinity, you still have the whole power because each one is omnipotent, right? Three persons, one God, omnipotent, right? So he's like, so the question was, well, if I have all the power of all three, isn't three sufficient to overcome me? Good question. Should be. Doesn't. Now, if he doesn't, I've got, I'm left with some questions, right? Either I've got to run around convincing myself that we're free from the bondage of sin and we can do it, which everything proves that obviously we can't. So then I'm left with somehow sin is a part of the plan. And I don't like that answer. You don't like that answer. But what are other options? God doesn't, didn't know. Okay, well, even if he didn't know, that's still not good. Because the minute it happened, he would, then he would have the power to get rid of it. So if he didn't know, that gets you the beginning. But if he couldn't stop it, then that eliminates his power. Now you have a God who's not all-knowing and a God who's not all-powerful. That is bad. In fact, you would seem to be have a God who not only is not all-knowing and not all-powerful, but then Satan and sin would be more powerful than God. God. <laughs> That's not good. Nobody wants to be confronted with this truth. 
Now, because as soon as I say this, can you already hear what people possibly online are saying right now? So you're saying sin is okay. You're saying sin is fine. You're saying sin is wonderful. I'm just acknowledging the reality that sin somehow has to be a part of the plan. Because if it's not a part of the plan, I don't have any other explanation for it. Right, right. Well, something, something went wrong, and then God lost all control over it. Now, does that, how, does, how does that make you feel? How does that make you feel? Does it even bother you, or does it make you uncomfortable? Now, if sin is a part of the plan, we, we would notice a couple of things. Just tell me, we're going to take it as a hypothesis, right? If sin is a part of the plan, what can we expect? The presence of sin and for it to continue. Is that happening? We would consider that we would still be sinners and still have a sinful nature and that we would still sin and God has not eradicated it, even with the presence of the Holy Spirit in me, has not overcome it or stopped it from happening. Is that the reality? That all fits it being a part of the plan. If it's not a part of the plan, I don't. What should we expect? Sin should be what? Gone. Well, they couldn't be arrogant because that'd be a sin. <laughs> yeah, they couldn't be arrogant. Yeah, no, pride couldn't set in. Yeah. Yeah, that would be a sin, okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we're all on this. We're all on the same level. We're all sinners, no matter how much we don't think, how much we think we don't want to. I mean, that, this is a major philosophical issue that Christians struggle with, because our our presupposition is what God doesn't want the sin there. He's given us the power and the ability to overcome it. And we can say no to it, and we can say yes to God. That is the, op- the place we all operate. Our whole Christian life, we've been taught that. And p- a part of it is because of pietism. I think it's part of our nature, too, because even my eight-year-old grandson, who's not very fluent in Christianity, right. started off saying God didn't really want this to happen. Right. I mean, it's almost we're built in to protect God. We got to get God off the hook. We got to get God off the hook. We got to get God off the hook. So is it, but in a roundabout way, we're getting God off the hook. But I don't, I don't know why we think this way, but it's just so weird. Maybe, maybe it is built into us. I don't know. But we seem to have a major issue here. Right. But somehow it can't be God's fault. But somehow it's like, but God didn't really want that to happen. Right. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Click, click. I'm like, but wait, if God didn't want this to happen. Why is it happening? Why is it happening? Right. It's got to be a part of the plan somehow. 
Well, no Christian can answer it. Other, other than we create this idea, and it's almost kind of back, back to a, a docetism and kind of a Gnostic kind of stuff, that there's basically two equal powers. One is good as one is bad, and they're involved in a cosmic war. But they're of equal power, and we're, the, we're caught in the middle of it. But that's not Christianity. That's not Christianity. And I know this, I know it raises a million questions because then how do I view sin in a life of someone? Because typically we view sin and it, we, we put it fully on that person. Now I understand that person, there's, there's responsibility. I'm not denying that, but I'm saying clearly God didn't do anything to say. Remember, I've talked about this behind, just from a biblical perspective, I'm sometimes baffled, right? Okay, Abraham's like, you know, look, hey, hey, look, they're going to kill me. Pretend you're my sister. Yeah, take her, right? And now she could be in a situation where she could be abused, taken, used sexually. And whenever, in both cases, who stepped in and stopped it? That means God can't stop it. But when David walks out, God can't bother to step in? God can't say, no, no, David, no. Has he not had... Been, had some kind of revelation and communication with David in some way, shape, or form? He couldn't step in? Definitely didn't come in to help out Hagar. <laughs> Nobody helps out Hagar, right? She gets kicked to the curb, right? So, like, ain't it weird? Like, sometimes God steps in. Yeah, yeah, I mean, but I'm saying she still gets kicked out. Yeah, I mean, I'm saying there didn't stop uh, her from the physical relationship between Abram and her, right? So I'm saying that there's other situations where nobody stepped in, God doesn't step in. And there's times you're like, well, what, what is going on here? And there's other times he steps in in a really big way, right? And in many of these cases, he doesn't even, he doesn't even need to step in in a major supernatural way, right? He could have just worked the timing where David, and, and he would have never seen her take in a bath. He could have just worked the timing out differently, it wouldn't have taken the parting of the Red Sea. But there's times he steps in in a major way. And there's times he doesn't seem to step in. And you're like, oh, how, how does that work? Okay, He does what he wants. He does, right? But it, it, raises, it raises some serious questions, all right? I just want you to struggle with that. But I just want you to realize... Clearly, we can, we can establish this much. Here is the reality. Does our sinful nature continue? Yes. Do we continue to sin? Yes. All right. Do we have the ability to stop sinning? No. Clear. I mean, everyone has to say no. Or, or, or you, if you, if you, okay, just prove to me that you can stop sinning. Okay, right? right clearly. Right? So clearly, we're, all of that's true. And if all of that is true then guess what? Even in sanctification, even if you're synergistic or monergistic, God clearly is not getting rid of all the sin in your life. In fact, we all agree that, that the sanctification will not even be complete until when? That means from the moment of salvation to glorification, what is going to be the norm of the Christian life? What is going to be the norm of the Christian life from justification to glorification? Sin. I 
Now, if sin is going to be the norm of the Christian life between justification and sancti- uh, glorification, then what can you not look at to prove your salvation? Your life, because guess what your life is going to be characterized by? Sin. And I hear, no, 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 no. Your life won't be characterized by it. If you're sinning all the time, it's characterized by it. What you mean is it won't be characterized by the mortal sin. But I don't know. God tells me to be holy as he is holy. I think that's a mortal sin if I don't fulfill that. God tells me to love him with all my heart, mind, body, and soul. I think that's a mortal sin if I don't fulfill that. He tells me to love my enemies and love my neighbor as myself. I think that's a mortal sin. And I don't think anybody ever even obeys those three commands. Therefore, your life is dominated by what? All right. Is that, is that, is everyone so happy with that? Okay. Any questions? Yes? No? Questions? All right. Now, here's what we're going to do. All right. That, that finishes the London Baptist, yes? All right. We're going to at least open up your uh, notes for the 25 theses. I've got to get my uh, book bag back here. All right. Everybody got thesis number one in front of them? Yes? Okay. If you don't have it, if you have the Church One app, just go to uh, the one labeled uh, Law and Gospel PDF, and you can open it up there in the app. All right. Here we go. Thesis number one. We may have cha- If you have the, ch- the way I rewrote them, uh, it's okay, but I think this one is pretty straightforward the way it was written. Okay, everybody ready? Here we go. Thesis number one. The doctrinal contents of the entire, entirety of the Bible or the entire Holy Scriptures, both of the Old and New Testament, are made up of two doctrines offering fun, uh, differing fundamentally from each other, and they are law and gospel. All right? Now, here's what I want you to understand. Whole Bible is made up of two doctrines, law and gospel, and they differ from each other. Now we have to under now listen, we have to understand law and gospel in light of the reality we just spent about 30 minutes trying to explain. We need to understand law and gospel in the reality that your life and my life, even as a believer, will be dominated by what? Sin. Now you see why we need law and gospel and understand how it works, right? Does that make sense? Okay, so far so good. All right, now, what we need to understand here is this. The point of difference between the law and the gospel is not the following things. The difference between the law and gospel is not the following things. I have it written in my notes, maybe a little different than the way it shows up in the book, God's Yes and God's No. I have it written down this way. The difference between law and gospel is not the following. We need to understand what is not the difference between the two. There is a difference between law and gospel. Everyone understand there's a difference? We need to first understand what the difference is not. All right? Are you ready? The first, number one. The difference between law and gospel is not the following. Gospel is divine and law 
a human doctrine. That is not what we're saying when they're different. We are not saying the gospel is divine and the law is human. We are not saying that. We are not saying the gospel is divine and the law is a human doctrine. Whatever of either doctrine is contained in the scriptures, whenever we see law in the scripture, whenever we see uh, gospel in the scripture, what can we dogmatically say about both? They are both divine. They are both from God. The law is from God. The gospel is from God. The difference is not one is human and one is divine. That would be an incorrect understanding of their difference. All right, everybody got that? Number two. The difference is not that the gospel is necessary and not the law. As if the law were a mere addition that could be dispensed of at a later time. You cannot say gospel is necessary, the law is not necessary. That is not a proper difference. You cannot think that way about them. You say the difference between law and gospel is gospel is necessary, law isn't. That is not true. Both are necessary. All right, are you ready? I want to make sure you get this down. You ready? Without the law, the gospel is not understood. Without the law, the gospel is not understood. So that means both are what? Necessary. Go ahead and write this down. Without the gospel, the law benefits us nothing. Without the gospel, the law has no real benefits. Now some people will immediately argue against that, but the law has no true benefits if there is no gospel. Why is that? Because the law, all the things we try to say law does, ultimately what, what does law always do to us? Always. It convicts us, it condemns us, it shows us our sin, and none of that is beneficial if there is no gospel. So sometimes in the Christian mind, we think that the law somehow fixes bad behavior. Okay? We, we sometimes, some, you'll see Christian parents, you know, I don't know what to do with my kid. He needs to go to church. Like, that's going to fix him? Oh, I got to send my kid to a Christian school because he's out of control. Uh, lady, I can't fix your kid. Oh, my kid needs to be going to a church. To, to church. It'll make them act better. But what are you talking about? It's not going to make them act better. The only thing that's going to make them act better is what? Conversion. And even that, they're still going to be what? A sinner. <laughs> okay, right? That's the, we always think, we, we, we think of Christianity in those terms. It will make you better. It will make you better. It doesn't work that way. I wish it did, but it doesn't. All right? Everybody understand that? All right, so 
Let's go through these. What time is it? Oh, man, we're, gonna, we're out of time. All right, here we go. The point, when we think about the difference between law and gospel, we need to first figure out what is not, what we're, what we're not talking about, all right? And the first one was, the first thing it's not is what? The gospel is divine and the law is human. Both are what? Divine. Number two, the gospel is necessary, not the law. And what do we need to understand? Without the law, the gospel is not understood. And without the gospel, the law benefits us nothing. Everybody got that? All right, number three. All right, this distinction, right, cannot be understood that the law is the teaching of the old while the gospel is the teaching of the new. That is not correct. You cannot say that the old, that the law is the old and the gospel is the new. Why can you not say that? Because you can find the gospel in the old and you can find the law in the new. You find the law in the new very quickly, do you not? What's the first book of the New Testament? Matthew, where does the Sermon on the Mount begin? Yeah, that's all law. Law, 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 law. Some will argue that the gospel is found in Genesis 3.15. That's early on. Now, not everyone agrees with that, but you get the idea. Okay? Well, yeah, well, Genesis, and Genesis says that, yeah, later on in Genesis, but I was going to the, uh, about the seed of the woman and the crushing the head. Right. Yeah. All right. All right. We cannot say, when we're trying to understand this difference, that the gospel, dif- that they, the law and gospel differ in regards to their final aim. This number four. Right? We cannot say that the law and gospel differ as regards to their final aim. What do they mean by this? Some people say, well, the gospel is aimed at man's salvation and the law is at, aimed at men's condemnation. That's not, well, the aim for both is man's salvation. But they just require what? Both of them. Sometimes we'll say, well, the law, and it is true, the law condemns and the gospel saves. That is true. But the aim of both is salvation. The aim of the law is to show you your need so salvation can occur. All right. We, we can't, when we're talking about the difference between law and gospel, we cannot say that law and gospel differ in regards to their final aim. Both have for their final aim man's salvation. Only the law, ever since the fall, cannot lead us to salvation. It can only prepare us for the gospel. Furthermore, it is through the gospel that we obtain the... Now, well, I'm not going to read the next part because we completely disagree. Uh, it depends on how we understand it. Because they're going to say through the gospel we can, uh, we can fulfill the law. We can in our position in Christ. We can't in practice. So it depends on what they mean by that. But okay. This is the main thing to understand is that the law cannot save us by itself, right? And we need both. We need both. Both of them have the aim of salvation. All right, we've got two more. I'm going to try to at least finish this. You ready? All right. 
I'll just read, I have these written down in my notes different ways, but I'm using uh, the book, all right? And I think I may have left one out in here, but I may just go through it in the book since we're this close. All right. Nor can we establish the difference by claiming that the law and the gospel contradict each other. We can't say that they contradict each other. Well, they, they have a... The goal is salvation. They have a different... Listen, they are distinct from each other. They don't contradict. And they are in harmony in their final aim. Well, the, their aim is... Both of them are designed for our salvation. So they have the same aim, right? Okay. So we cannot say that the difference is that they contradict. They're distinct, and they're in harmony in their final aim. But they are distinct. They are different. We just can't say that they contradict. If they contradict, then they couldn't work together, right? But let's be very honest. They can look like they contradict. They can appear to contradict. All right, next, the, the finally, the difference is not this. You ready for this? The difference is not this, that only one of these doctrines is meant for Christians. All right, you can't just say one of these is for the Christian. Even for the Christian, the law still retains its significance. Now, they're going to make a bold statement here, which I don't like, because it kind of falls right back into kind of a lordship idea, but I understand what they're going to say here. When a person ceases to employ either of these two doctrines, he's no longer a true Christian. I don't like the way that's worded, but I know what they're trying to say. In other words, true Christianity requires what? Law and gospel. It requires both. It requires both. Because what's the work of the law in the Christian's life? It constantly humbles us, should convict us, should humiliate us, hopefully lead to some kind of hatred for sin, but it constantly drives us back to Christ. The more you sin, the more you see your sin, the more you should love Christ. All right, we'll have to stop there because we're out of time. I don't want to stop there, but don't think we have any other options. All right, any questions? Next, we'll look at the true points of difference, how they truly are different from each other, and we have six ways in which they're truly different. All right? I want to go through them right now, but I can't. Any questions about anything we said tonight? All right. So let's make sure we understand. Long gospel. They are different, are they not? They're not to be merged together. Yes? And we have to understand this difference 
And we have to make sure we don't mingle them together in light of what reality? The Christian life will be dominated by sin. And I know the minute I say that, people lose their minds. But to, to, it's ridiculous to say, no, no, a Christian's life won't be dominated by sin when I give, gave you three scriptures that nobody ever fulfills. Be holy as God is holy. Do you ever fulfill it? No. How long do you not fulfill it? Your entire life. That would mean your entire life is dominated by what? Sin, because it's a commanded in Scripture. Be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is imperfect. As your heavenly Father in heaven is perfect. No one does that. First Peter, be ye holy. Leviticus, be ye holy as God is holy. We fall short of that. Love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemy. Turn the other cheek. I can go on and on and on and on. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loves the church. Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. I can go on. I mean, how many more do I need, right? Meditate on God's word day and night, right? Pray without. Rejoice evermore. Do all things without grumbling and complaining and murmuring. I mean, where do you want me? You want me to stop yet? Okay, well, someone's honest. Like, yeah, because we sin. But we somehow constantly tell ourselves, no, 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 no. It's not about perfection. It's about direction. Well, you know what my direction is? Sin. I just gave you a bunch of them that you do continually. So I've got to understand, how does law and gospel work in that? And I've got to know this. Whether you believe in monergistic or synergistic, one thing we know, God is not eradicating our old nature. We're not going to stop sinning. And that's a fact until glorification. Why is that? Somehow it's got to be a part of the plan. And I don't know how to wrap my mind around that. I wish I could understand that. Look, it even causes problems about prayer. What do we always say about prayer? Someone wrote me an email about this. I need to do a podcast on it. I've got to find the email. I don't know who wrote the email. I've got to find the email. But they wrote me an email about how do we understand righteousness in prayer? Because the Bible seems to say that the righteous man, right, his prayer availeth much. Well, what do we mean by that? Like someone who's more righteous because we're all sinners. So how do we understand this? And some say, well, the righteous will desire the will of God more, so therefore their prayers will be answered more because, well, God answers all prayers that are according to his will. All right, I'll give you a test. Did God desire you to be holy? Pray that you'll be holy. Go ahead. Tell me how you, how you did last week. Next Sunday, you can tell me how you did this week. You're going to be holy? This God... That... That, that's, that will hurt my brain, will it not? Well, wait a minute. God wants me to pray. He'll answer the prayer according to his will. Well, his will has to be that I don't sin. That causes some problems, does it not? I don't have a good answer for anyone. Well, if I pray that, God, that I'll stop sinning, why doesn't God make me stop sinning? I wish I had that answer. Well, you would be dead, okay? Or he could just eradicate the old nature and give you the power to say no to sin and yes to God. In that case, you don't even need to pray for it. 
And most Christians say, we already have that power, so I don't know why I need to pray if I already have the power. But even though I don't have the power, I'm not going to pray and God's going to give me the power because he's not getting rid of the old nature, which once again seems to signify that sin is somehow part of his will and plan. And I don't understand why it would be a part of his will and plan because we are embarrassed by it, shamed by it, excommunicated for it, condemned, given the scarlet letter. We're destroyed by it. It's not God's will. Well, if it's not God's will, why is it on earth? Right. That that creates open theism and creates all kinds of things. Look, I don't have any easy answers. I just know this reality. I still have a sinful nature. I still sin. God is still holy. He condemns that sin. But clearly, he's not doing anything to eradicate it. Because it could be gone how quickly? And you wouldn't sin this evening or tomorrow. I'll leave you with that. Mind-blowing concept. Because I don't have answers for it. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. I, Lord, I, I truly... I'm at a loss for words trying to understand all of this, but we do know this, that you sent your son to die for us and our only hope is in his finished work. And we thank you for that. And that is what we cling to. That is where our hope is found. And when I go to bed this evening, it's not going to be resting in anything I can do, will do, should do, but what Christ completely did. And we thank you for that. And we ask this in his name. And God's people said,